hello, hello. Today we are chatting with the lovely Odetta. We'll be discussing a bit of her life, her eating disorder journey, and what made her become an eating disorder advocate. Uh, so without further ado, Odetta, how are you? How are you feeling today? Hello. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Hmm, I am feeling, in this very moment, quite calm and grounded. Amazing. We yeah. love that. Oh. Yeah. That's wonderful. And so could you please tell me a bit about yourself and your life story? And I'm especially interested in how you eventually became a speaker for eating disorder awareness and advocacy. Mm -hmm. Of course. Oh, every time someone asks me this question, I'm like, where do I begin? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of it ties into the story um, mm -hmm. of how that all came to be. But I was born in Albania. Mm -hmm. um, moved to Canada with my family when I was three. Uh, so English is actually my second language. Kind of got settled into Canadian life quite quickly, but always felt a little, a little different or like mm -hmm. I didn't completely fit in. I think navigating two different worlds, two different cultures at such an early age, the Albanian culture at home, and then being um, immersed in Canadian culture and different mm -hmm. types of people and different ethnicities. That was something to adjust to as I was growing up, but it was fine. I had a pretty good childhood. My parents were very loving, very present. Um, I have so childhood, I remember being very bubbly and loud, and I love Cheetah Girls and Hilary Duff, <laughs> and I love dancing and movement. I just really like taking up space. I was a very like mm -hmm. active, extroverted kid, which is funny because I'm quite introverted right now. But um, so that was kind of growing up and. Things started getting a little bit difficult for me, I would say around the time I was 11. So mm -hmm. entering into middle school, uh, my family moved from Toronto up to Vaughan and mm -hmm. I, I switched schools in sixth grade. And that was when most of my difficulties began, I think. Mm -hmm. I got bullied a lot. I, I actually mm -hmm. got bullied prior to that. I got bullied since I was in grade one, like here and there, but mm -hmm. really the the height of the bullying started in sixth grade, sixth to eighth grade. And I just never really understood why I was verbally, emotionally bullied, cyber bullied from people mm -hmm. in other schools who I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. And around the time that you are hitting puberty in those formative social age ages, mm -hmm. that took a real big hit on my sense of self and my identity. Um, I wasn't really told what was happening. I, I wasn't really educated that much on the menstrual cycle or puberty or what happens to a girl's body when she's going through those through that stage. So my hips grew, my thighs grew. I mm -hmm. was always taller than all the other girls. And I was just like a little bit bigger than everybody else. And people started commenting on it. My bullies mm -hmm. would start commenting on it. And I remember struggling around this time with depression. I felt really mm -hmm. lonely, really sad. I started getting very dark thoughts and I really didn't like the way that I looked. This was mm -hmm. also around the time that I started using food to self-soothe. I remember just eating like a lot of bread and Nutella, just like binging on Nutella, which I love now. But back then, I really think I used it as a coping mechanism because I didn't understand what was happening. Mm -hmm. 
And I had a quite good relationship with my mom and I could tell her, you know, what I was experiencing. And she raised me to be a really strong woman, which Mm -hmm. on one hand is amazing. And on the other hand, I never felt like I was fully seen in my emotion or my pain. It was always like, Mm -hmm. you're okay. Like, don't cry. You're strong. You'll make it through. And again, that gave me, you know, motivation, but there was this really sensitive side of me. I've always been a really sensitive, Mm -hmm. uh, empathetic kid. There was that sensitive side of me that never felt like, it was really seen and I never got to talk to anyone about it. So that was a really big formative few years, I think, that took a took a toll on my body image, my self-esteem, uh, the social relationships with my friends. I, I always really struggled with making friends and keeping them. And so all of that started to create this narrative in my head of who you are authentically isn't somebody that people like. Hmm. And so really grounding down into that, I started looking outside myself and, you know, wanting to copy other people or like, how can I show up in a way that other people will like me? What do I have to wear? How do I have to talk? What do I have to do? Because it seemed that everything that I did authentically to me, somebody would make fun of it. Somebody would mm-hmm. bully me for it. I, I used to love dancing. It was... Um, around this time that I hit puberty, dancing was like my therapy. If I didn't dance, I didn't know how to express myself. Dancing and writing, Mm -hmm. those two things. And I remember I signed up for the talent show in seventh grade and I like danced my heart out. And these like group of boys were laughing at me afterwards. And it just crushed me because I, I, I showed the whole school my heart and like who I was authentically. And it just wasn't, it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at home coming from an immigrant family, My parents sacrificed everything to come to Canada, which I'm extremely grateful for. But again, on one hand, amazing. On the other hand, uh, there was such an intense pressure that they put on me to succeed and achieve and to get perfect grades and to be on student council and to volunteer and sign up for all the things and and just be this like perfect daughter, perfect student, perfect athlete, perfect, perfect, perfect. And then behind the scenes, I was drowning in insecurities and and depression and anxiety and Mm -hmm. just I remember crying a lot because Mm -hmm. of this overwhelming amount of emotions and then I would have to you know put on a face when I got to school and just try to make it through the day without getting ridiculed by Mm -hmm. somebody and then mm-hmm. as I went into high school, the bullying kind of subsided, but I had built a really big wall between me and other people. So I tended to be by myself, didn't really know where I fit in. So that also kind of messed with my self-esteem, like, oh, maybe I'm just a loner. Maybe I just, you know, thrive by myself. At the end of grade nine, I remember making a commitment to myself of wanting to lose weight. Mm-hmm. That was when I was 14 years old. I was like, I'm done with this binging. I'm done with these unhealthy habits. Looking back at first, I approached it from a good place. I'm like, I I have these unhealthy habits and I want to be healthier. I want to take care of my Mm -hmm. body. I want to take care of myself. At the time, Tumblr was a really big thing. And I was very much a Tumblr girl. Um, (laughs) There was this side of Tumblr that was at the time called Pro Anna. And it was Mm -hmm you know, promoting disordered eating patterns masked as something beautiful to aspire Mm -hmm. to. I came across a lot of them and I kind of used my Tumblr as a way to share anonymously my health journey. So I started working out, doing YouTube videos. I started counting my calories because Mm -hmm. that, that was 
you know, what I was told to do to be healthy. And there was this, you know, perfect number of calories you had to hit. And I would hit it every day. And I, you know, I had a target goal. I would hit it by this date. And I did. And I was like, okay, I'm done dieting. I'm good. I hit my like weight goal. I feel great. But the behaviors were instilled and the thoughts were rooted and it just didn't stop. So even though I said I was done dieting, I was done losing weight. I continued eating the same amount and slowly started eating less and less. Six or seven months later, I was admitted to the hospital and Mm. I stayed there for two months. And originally it wasn't because of an eating disorder. Because I was losing so much weight, my mom was afraid that I had like a hormonal Mm -hmm. issue because my brother struggled with some hormonal problems as he hit puberty. And the way that my parents a little bit to this day still think, they think in terms of like the physical body, if there's a problem, there's something wrong with, with your blood or your hormones or Mm-hmm. So she made an appointment to see, I think, an endocrinologist mm-hmm. and they checked my heart rate and they were like, your heart rate's a little low. I'm going to send you upstairs to get an EKG and just see if there's anything wrong. We went upstairs and the doctor said to my mom, mm-hmm. uh, your daughter's heart rate is so low. Like we can't let you leave the hospital. We have to admit you. And I remember talking to the doctor and you know, she asked me, have you been dieting? Have you lost weight? And I was honest. And then they admitted me into at the time, the child psychiatry unit. So that was traumatic in and of itself, that experience, because I never thought that this was what I was experiencing. That was kind of the lead up to that. And, you know, and I've done a lot of, of course, a lot of healing work since then, trying to mm-hmm. see the patterns and, and, and see how that all happened. And I know enough to be able to share my story now with you. Of course, it's a lifelong journey of, of trying to understand myself better mm-hmm. through those really formative um, childhood and teenage years. Mm-hmm. But if I could summarize it, it was a combination of the upbringing in my family, this, mm-hmm. you know, perfection, having to achieve being the perfect daughter in combination with the bullying that I struggled with during those formative social years of never really feeling like I was good enough as I was to make friends. And then of course, there's a whole other aspect of like society as a whole and, um, and the diet culture in so many different industries and the beauty industries. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. Mm -hmm. And you also stole my job. I usually do the summarizing after. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, oh, she did it perfectly. Thank you. That was wonderful as well. I have a few questions from what you've said as well, just to clarify um, as well. So that that strong girl um, that you were mentioning early on, would you say that back then that was a bit of a facade or the, the protective wall that you put up and... Would you say now that your definition of a strong girl has evolved or changed at all? That is such a fantastic question. (laughs) Oh, such a great question. I have lots to say about this. I (laughs) I will start off with saying, you know, I think the reason why my mom instilled that in me is because she had to be a strong woman to overcome everything she did in her life. And she had to be a strong woman to move away from her family to a different country where she didn't know anyone with two little kids and one Mm -hmm. suitcase. Like she had to do that. And so that is what helped her thrive. And that is what she knew. And so of course, she wanted to raise her daughter to be a strong woman like she was. But definitely, there was this wall that was built up 
that led to a lot of self-judgment to myself because again, I have always been an extremely sensitive kid, mm-hmm. just felt things extremely deeply, felt subtle like emotions and energies around me that I didn't understand and I'm still mm-hmm. trying to understand it now. But I, you know, I was because I was always told to be a strong woman and society doesn't really emphasize feeling your feelings very much. Mm-hmm. I definitely had to put up this like strong woman attitude or, mm-hmm. or or wall to succeed. I think from the outside looking in, I think I did give off this like image of perfection, like but I was like emotionally dying on the inside because I didn't think that those emotions were valid or were worth being seen. I thought they had to be hidden. And so my definition of being a strong woman has completely changed. There is of course a part of it that is what was told to me by my by my mom, like, know your worth. But the other side that I have had to learn on my own was how vulnerability and emotion can be such a powerful thing yeah. and how mm-hmm. expressing your emotions and being authentic in that way is a form of strength because mm-hmm. You know, 99% of people walk around with a mask and conceal their emotions and don't actually allow people in to see that side of themselves. And the people who do, the people who can go out into the world, wear their heart on their sleeves and be so emotionally exposed, like that's a really uncomfortable thing. Mm -hmm. But I find that to be incredibly strong. So I have had to learn and I'm still learning how to allow myself to be vulnerable, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Absolutely does. Thank you. I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, Brene Brown, but yeah. She, yeah. She's, oh my God, she's my favorite. <laughs> so that's, you know, Brene's work is really where I started to understand Me shame too. and vulnerability. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, I can <laughs> feel my emotions. Like no one has given me permission to do that before. Mm-hmm. So shout mm-hmm. out Brene. Yeah, gosh, if she ever listens to this, I will cry. Um, But yeah, no, exactly. The power of vulnerability, sensitivity is a superpower. And Mm -hmm. again, if you're comfortable, if I could ask what some of the feelings were that you had about yourself, either about yourself or others, actually, when you were having those experiences between grade six and grade nine, um, Mm. what would you say some of those feelings were? very intense, overwhelming feelings. I remember feeling depressed, like beyond, Mm -hmm. beyond sadness, this, this really extreme dark weight that it felt like a shadow was just following me every day. I remember feeling anxious at the time. I didn't know what that word meant, but definitely Mm. anxious. Like I could never settle down. Like something was always wrong. I was doing something wrong all the time. I felt really lonely, like really, really, really lonely. Because of that, I, you know, I learned how to be myself, which is, I guess, a silver lining. But again, I struggled with, you know, the social um, aspects Mm -hmm. of things, which I still struggle with sometimes. And despite all those really intense feelings, I always felt this tiny, tiny beacon of hope, like so Mm -hmm. little, almost like, uh, like a candle that's about to burn out, but it's just Mm -hmm. a little ember. 
that kept me going because I, I went into some really dark places to the point that I, I didn't think I would make it out or I, I didn't, yeah. I was scared mm-hmm. for my life. And I think that little flicker of hope that was in me, even though I didn't necessarily feel it directly all the time, it, it was there and it kept me going. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And again, feel free to share as much or as little as you'd like, but were those feelings what you felt for your eating disorder as well as in are those some of the things that your eating disorder made you feel as well I think my eating disorder made me feel different things which is why it led to such an addiction with the whole the whole thing my eating disorder in particular made me feel powerful because Mm -hmm. I I had Mm -hmm. such an incredible sense of control and I was making things happen. I was changing my body. I was changing my behaviors. I was changing the way people talked to me and looked at me. So it made me feel like I had this key, this like secret key that only I had. And it was the key to to feeling amazing and looking mm-hmm. amazing. So it, it made me feel powerful. It was sneaky in that regard. Mm-hmm. It made me feel, feel powerful. It made me feel comforted for sure. I think with all of the anxiety, depression, and loneliness I felt, my eating disorder felt like a friend who yeah. mm-hmm. knew me really well. And I actually wrote a poem about this because uh, I've been a writer my whole life and poetry mm-hmm. was one of the ways I had to express myself. And and the poem, I, I forgot it now, I have it somewhere, but it, it, it's something like Dear Old Friend. Like it felt like, a, it felt like an old friend who was just always there, um, toxic in the long run, but yeah you know, in the short term, I felt comforted. Yeah, yeah. And and then, as you said, that led to the addictive nature of the eating disorder as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And were there any other particular challenges that came up with having an eating disorder for you? <sighs> yeah. Um, I was very angry. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, to this day, I'm working on a lot of suppressed anger. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of different reasons. But around that time that I had the eating disorder, and I obviously wasn't fueling my body well, so I wasn't thinking straight. Um, And I was very, I was very reactive. So I I remember being very angry and very explosive to the people around me. Um, My family, which was around me most of the time, they kind of got most of it. When I didn't feel powerful, I felt all of those overwhelming emotions again. So they, they never really went away. They would just kind of be numbed for a little bit mm-hmm. um, or I distracted myself from it, but, but they would be there. So the loneliness, the depression, the anxiety was still there. And it made it feel like, oh, well, I have the perfect body now. So why do I still feel this way? Yeah, That mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. So there was a little bit of like this back and forth between feeling powerful and in control and feeling defeated. So I, I guess a challenge from that was, never understanding what was happening with me, never understanding my own emotions. And I think that's why I needed something to control outside Mm -hmm. of myself because I could never really control how I felt on the inside. I mean, I I missed two months of school when I was hospitalized and I definitely dealt with a lot of whispers, not not when I was in the, because obviously I didn't know, but before that, you know, there was a lot of like, Oh, she's gotten really skinny. She looks like mm-hmm. a skeleton, like all of these. Mm-hmm. I was still kind of getting, but like, I was like, oh, I can never win. Mm-hmm. Like my body never mm-hmm. looks the way you want it to look. 
so people always had something to say. Um, and uh, I pulled away from a lot of people. Didn't have anyone, didn't want anyone because I had my good old friend Ed. Yeah. And what were some of the strategies that you used to overcome some of these challenges? Although I'm grateful that I got hospitalized when I did, because the nurse told me, you know, like one more day and I probably wouldn't have survived. It was that bad. My experience in the hospital wasn't a good one and it was traumatizing in and of itself. And so even to this day, I have a lot of anger towards a lot of the ways that we deal with eating disorders and eating disorder recovery through programs and hospitals and because of my experience there. So, you know, they, they restored my weight and then I was just, you know, sent off into the world, but I still had all the emotions and all the thoughts and no one helped me with any of them. A few things that really helped my recovery was uh, one, my mom, my mom was, Mm -hmm. was a key support in my recovery process. She, helped me stay on a meal plan after I got out of the hospital so I wouldn't, you know, go back to the way I was eating. She mm-hmm. was just always there for me. So, so support is huge. Um, another thing that helped me tremendously was yoga. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm a yoga instructor now. It's like the the love of my life is like Amazing. yoga. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a really big reason why is because of how pivotal it was in my recovery. I was doing yoga before I developed the eating disorder. I found it at the age of like 14, 13, 14. And I just, I fell in love with it. And I wasn't allowed to exercise after I got out of the hospital. But the moment that I was, I started doing yoga. It was like the only thing I did a few times a week. I went to the studio by my house. And that was one of the things that also saved my life and helped me Mm -hmm. not relapse because I got to, every time I stepped on the mat, I got to approach exercise from a completely different way than when I was doing it earlier. Before Mm -hmm. it was, how much can I sweat? How many calories can I burn? How can I get skinny? But with yoga... It was, how do I feel right now? What emotions are coming up for me? How does my body feel? Can I, can I challenge myself when I want to slow down when I have to? It was this incredible mind, body, soul practice that completely changed the way I viewed my body and movement. And obviously that, that was a gateway into meditation and mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which helped me with the anxiety and the depression and the overwhelming feelings, which I, you know, I still practice both today, obviously. So those were key, key things in my journey. And then really my eating disorder was the catalyst for my Mm -hmm. devotion to relearning how to eat and move in a way that's healthy. Mm -hmm. Because I told myself, okay, the way I was doing it wasn't working. And I made a commitment to myself to never end up in the hospital again, because it was such an awful experience for me. I'm like, okay, I can't relapse. How can I make sure that doesn't happen? And so I dedicated myself to, as if I was a baby, relearn everything. How do I move in a healthy way? How do I eat in a healthy way? So I started educating myself on proper nutrition and what the body needs. And eventually when I was 16, 17, I opened myself up to uh, strength training. And that gave me also a different avenue to explore my body. Like, oh, how can I get strong instead of skinny? How can mm-hmm. I like, it empowered me in a way that movement or exercise didn't before. Mm-hmm. 
that all led into me deciding to study kinesiology at university. So just, again, diving full force into I want to learn everything about the body, health, nutrition, so I understand how to do it and how to be healthy without letting it become addictive and obsess- obsessive again. I had, I had support from a few key teachers in high school that I felt really safe going to Um, Mm -hmm. one of them was like my gym teacher and she knew uh, the extent of what I was going through and I always felt safe to go to her my English teacher I shared with her you know the depths of my emotions there are these like few teachers that I really felt safe to be myself around and they gave me a lot of hope and encouragement so that support um, was great Amazing. And um, I'm curious because I'm from Iran and culturally there are a few different understandings and misunderstandings about eating disorders compared to here in Canada. So I'm curious, culturally, what was it like having an eating disorder being from Albania? Yeah, it was a little taboo. Mental health in general, like if you were struggling with anxiety and depression, it's not something that you would talk to people about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Again, they, they put on a strong face, you know, you be mm-hmm. strong, you you tough it out, don't cry, mm-hmm. like just push through. Eating disorders was very taboo. Like my, it wasn't even in my parents' radar, which is why when I was losing so much weight, my mom didn't even think that that could be a thing because it just wasn't in her like conscious awareness that that was a thing mm-hmm. that could could happen. I, I mean, even in Canada at the time, it was like very taboo. People weren't really talking about it. Mental health was kind of like, oh, you don't, that happens behind closed doors. You don't express it outwardly. So it was really difficult to understand what was happening when no one really talked about it. And I had to do mm-hmm. so much research on myself to to understand what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And now a bit more about you and your life in general. Again, this question can be about your eating disorder, but it can also be about something in general. So was there a particularly difficult moment in your life that you thought you handled well? And do you think doing so helped you turn around your life in some way? I'm just going to trust my intuition with this one. The first thing that came up was my Second year of university was really, really rough for me. I was struggling a lot with anxiety and depression that year in particular. I mean, that has, mm-hmm. I've struggled with that most of my life, but in the second year of university, I was really struggling. Like I could barely go to classes because I would just be bedridden. And um, a lot of my eating disorder thoughts were coming back up. My body image issues were coming back up. And although I struggled a lot with that, I really dedicated myself to self-care and self-love. So that was Mm -hmm. really the year that I started exploring what self-care and self-love kind of meant. And I started introducing wellness into my life more holistically, like body, mind, soul. You know, I felt really bad. So I'm like, how can I make myself feel better? I'm like, okay. Social media is not making me feel good right now. I need to take Mm. some time off it. Journaling and making art and dancing feel really good for me. So I'm going to go do those things. And I would would do the things that bring me joy. I would reach out for support with my mom, friends when I needed it. You know, I'd focus on getting like quality sleep, on trying to feed myself well from what I've learned in nutrition. And so I really... 
allowed myself to just do those little self-care things as Mm -hmm. small as they were or as big as they were to just love myself, which was Mm -hmm. very hard for me to do. So I think that year, my grades, I struggled with my grades a little bit, but I, I mean, I managed, I pushed through and mm-hmm. I learned, I learned a lot that year in particular about what it means to take care of yourself when you're not feeling mentally well. It was also the year that I started releasing the stigma on myself and wanted to be part of destigmatizing mental health. So I started with myself that year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. And now there's an expression that I think you might like. It's that the body tells a story. Mm. And again, with all the things that you've mentioned, I think it speaks nicely to the idea that eating disorders aren't about food. They're almost never about just food and that mental health can have this the mind-body-soul connection that you mentioned. So if your body could tell a story, what would the summary or the spark notes of that story be? That's such a beautiful question. Again, trusting my intuition with this one. Um, Mm -hmm. It would be the story of a girl who is learning how to love herself in Mm -hmm. a world that constantly makes her feel like she's not good enough. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And so somewhere along your journey as well, you chose to become a mental health speaker. Now I'm curious, what did advocacy look like in your personal journey? It started in high school, like the same year I got released from the hospital. I, when Instagram kind of became a thing or when social media was a little bit bigger, I, I shared on social media a lot about mental health. I, I would just you know, be honest about how I was feeling and what I struggle with and that it's okay and just wanting to be like a source of hope for others, I guess. So it kind of started a little bit on social media. It really picked up in grade 12 of high school when I decided to enter a pageant because one of the one of the prizes of the winner of the pageant was um, a trip with Midui to Kenya. And I, I was really, mm-hmm. really drawn to doing humanitarian work overseas at the time. Mm-hmm. Still am. But I entered the pageant for that reason. Each candidate needed to choose a platform, something that they were going to have as their foundation to share with the world or to to advocate for. And mine mm-hmm. immediately was eating disorder awareness. So the whole year leading up to the final pageant, eating disorder awareness was my platform. So I would write blog posts about it. I would share my story. I published a short form piece of writing for the National Eating Disorder Association. I talked on stages. In high school, I even like set up a booth for National Eating Disorder Month. And on this one day, I got everyone to wear purple shirts, which is like the color for National Eating Disorder. Anyways, I made this like Bristol board sharing like what it what eating disorders are the symptoms what to look out for so i was just like so invested in sharing with the world what i had gone through and educating people on what it was because again it was taboo and nobody talked about it and i thought to myself i just want to make one person feel seen like if if i had somebody like this for me at that time it would have been very helpful And so that was kind of like my driving force. I just wanted to be that person for somebody else. 
And then I, I just kind of continued from there, especially on social media, just being really, really vocal. Every time I was struggling with depression, anxiety, body image issues, um, speaking out against diet culture, I, you know, after university, I entered the fitness industry, which, you know, a lot of <laughs> unhealthy messages in there. And so being two feet in the fitness industry and seeing behind the scenes what was happening, I got to be that person to call it out and say, like, you know, we need to we need to change the narrative. We can't keep doing this because it it was messages of fitness that was a contributing factor into pushing me into the eating disorder. And it was all wrong. And so that's why I really educated myself um, to help people learn how to do it in a way that wasn't mm -hmm. at a detriment to their mental or emotional health. So if you could please try to imagine bringing yourself to write your very first story or speech on eating disorders. And then could you please describe how you were feeling? What was going through your mind? There was definitely a level of sadness and mm. that sadness walked hand in hand with compassion. I, I remember writing and being like, oh, I can't believe I went through that. Like, oh, I can't believe I felt that way about myself, that it, it got that bad. And there was also a lot of determination. People need to hear this. People need to know what this is. They need to know that it, it's going to be okay and they're not alone and there are resources. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to use what happened to me to help other people. If I can clarify as well, that sadness, was it, intertwined with a bit of grief as well because you were mentioning oh I was so sad that like you know I had gone through this and uh so on just um wanted to clarify what the sadness was for mm. I guess that you know there there was a there was a part of me that had to let go of you know my 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 comforting friend and I guess you could say like there, there was a grieving process. I would say the grieving process for me happened in the hospital rather than afterwards, because in the hospital, those two months, I grieved tremendously of like, oh my God, I can't have that life anymore. I can't do those things anymore. And, and, and that was what I attached my identity to. So if I don't have that, then who am I and who will I become? So I grieved pretty hard in the hospital but then after when I found all of these other tools that gave me so much more intrinsic happiness and self-worth, I was okay of letting that part go. It just, I guess that grief faded into like a little bit of sadness and compassion afterwards. If you can imagine, say, one of the speeches you gave on stage, if you can imagine what you felt before you went on. Yeah, I think I was 17. 17 mm -hmm. years old and I was nervous. I, mm -hmm. I always get, I'm a fitness instructor and I like mm -hmm. instruct rooms full of 50 people. And mm -hmm. to this, I've been doing this for over five years and I still get nervous when I'm in front of people, when people mm -hmm. are staring at me. So I definitely was feeling nervous. I was shaking my, mm -hmm. I had like butterflies in my stomach. But when I got on stage, I, I knew that I was there for a bigger purpose. So those mm -hmm. nerves kind of went away. And what impact did you think it had on the audience? Or even a slightly different question, what impact did you want it to have on the mm. audience? The impact I wanted it to have is hope. I wanted to give 
again, even one person hope. I wanted somebody to feel seen in my story, in my journey. And I think it, I think it did that. I remember after the first speech I gave, like a, a mom came up to me and shared oh. like, you know, her daughter struggling with an eating disorder. And like, she was on the verge of tears and saying like, oh, it was just so beautiful hearing your story and seeing so much of my daughter in you. So thank you mm -hmm. for sharing that. And, you know, even on social media, when I've shared so much about my journey, I've gotten personal messages of people sharing their story with me. Actually, if you wanted another little piece, I, I mm -hmm. posted, it was like one of the very first posts I ever made on TikTok and it got like 80K views or something like that. Um, and it was me. I was in tears in the video because it was the a 10 year anniversary of my uh, hospitalization. Oh, wow. And so I mm -hmm. felt just a lot of emotion that day. And I shared that TikTok and people went to my Instagram from my TikTok to personally message me oh, wow. and say like, thank you so much for sharing. I don't know what it was about what you said, but it gave me hope. And I'm 16, I'm 14, I'm struggling. So they shared their stories with me. So I, I think I accomplished that. I, I made somebody feel seen and gave somebody hope that it was possible to recover and possible to like lead a life of health and joy after that. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, just slightly backtracking, but what you said about like you, you were hoping that I would make one person at least feel seen. And I think that's so beautiful. And again, like eating disorders really like, at least for me, it felt like erasing myself, like not wanting to be seen, not wanting to take up space. So to do the exact opposite, that must have pissed off Ed immensely. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, is, <laughs> which is what we like. Yeah. Um, so that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And um, so you mentioned like, you know, there was a mum in the audience. Um, I'm assuming there were a bunch of different audiences mm -hmm. um, that you spoke to. Do you find that you ever had to adapt or tailor your story in some way? Mm. No, I tried to be as honest, as authentic as possible. I just, mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. shared my story. That That's mm -hmm. always what I did. I shared my experience, what happened to me and the little nuggets of wisdom that I learned. And if it resonates with you, amazing. If it doesn't, great. But it was, it was my truth. So there's really mm -hmm. no way of filtering or adapting your truth if you're sharing authentically from your heart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As speakers, we can sometimes what we share might not resonate as we'd like with the audience. Is that ever something that you felt as well? I have felt that way on social media a few times where I'm trying to share something authentically and it's just crickets like nobody mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it doesn't hit the way that I wanted it to hit I have figured out why that was the case it was because I was trying to filter myself and trying to show up in a certain type of way or like you said adapt mold my story into the way that I think it could resonate with people rather than doing what I originally did, which was just share my truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so nowadays, when you share your story, what are some of the emotions, thoughts, feelings that you have now presenting your story, showing your truth? Mm, yeah. I mean, talking about it definitely activates my body. Like I feel a somatic response. I just clench a little bit. So I have to remind myself I'm safe and I can, <laughs> yeah. I can relax. Uh, so definitely like a physical response as I'm 
going back to those memories and those experiences, um, I feel that same level of like sadness, compassion, where sometimes I cry or I'm on the verge of tears when I'm sharing because I feel so much compassion for my younger self. Amazing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Right now, a bit about society overall Let's go. <laughs> um so I know that we we briefly again spoke a bit about myths and misconceptions earlier on but what do you think are some of the main misconceptions that society and people have about eating disorders yeah the, you mentioned it earlier one is it's about it's always about food it's right. rarely ever about the food another one is eating disorders you have to be skinny or underweight to have an eating disorder. And there are so many different kinds of eating disorders of people of all kinds of body shapes and sizes. There's also disordered eating, which isn't a full-blown eating disorder, but you know mm-hmm. the behaviors and patterns are there. Mm-hmm. I think a misconception some people might have is if you are not diagnosed with an eating disorder, it's not an eating disorder. When there is very much disordered eating behaviors mm-hmm. in many people and industries and cultures and societies as a whole. Oh, another one is people who have eating disorders want to change their body. They like want mm-hmm. to be skinnier or have a different body. And just like the food, it mine person my personal story did start off as me wanting to diet and lose weight, but it's mm-hmm. not always about that. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. about uh, wanting to diet or wanting to change the body for aesthetic purposes. It could be a side effect of really intense emotions or experiences or trauma somebody that somebody had in the past that led to mm-hmm. that addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And what do you think is a better way for folks to think about eating disorders? Oh my God, I have been waiting to talk about this. <laughs> Spill. Uh, holistically, I, I think we need to look at it from a holistic lens because the Mm -hmm. body affects the mind affects the soul the heart like all of it is intertwined and so a great way we can start talking about eating disorders is approaching it from a holistic perspective it's not just about the body it's not just about the mind it's a combination of so many different factors it's a combination of your upbringing of society of your family and friends of how you feel about yourself of Mm -hmm. your body of your mental like there's it's so nuanced and so multifaceted that to only focus on the physical to only focus on the body or to only focus on the mental aspect Mm -hmm. is neglecting so much of what the illness is as a whole absolutely absolutely yeah no it's it's like a um whole systems ecological point of view of that disorder biopsychosocial yeah of it yeah 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 absolutely And so to ask the opposite, we should be talking more about eating disorders, but why do you think we don't? Why do you think there's so much resistance? Two things come to mind. One, they're uncomfortable. We don't (laughs) like talking about uncomfortable things. We don't like talking about our trauma and our pain and our darkness and our fears and our insecurities. If it's an uncomfortable emotion, we hide from it as like Brene Brown shares Mm -hmm. in so many of her books. 
So they're hard to talk about because they're deeply uncomfortable. If, if you're experiencing them, it's uncomfortable. But as human beings, even hearing somebody else talk about their pain is uncomfortable for us. So we tend to shy away from it and pretend it doesn't exist. That mm-hmm. is one of them. I think another reason why eating disorders are so hard to talk about is because disorder eating behaviors are so prevalent in culture mm-hmm. that it has become a norm. And mm-hmm. so the term eating disorder is this like far out diagnosis that only affects like a certain percentage of people when in reality, a lot of those behaviors and patterns that can lead to a full-blown diagnosed eating disorders are everywhere, Absolutely, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so- people don't really see the problem because it's normalized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And now a bit about youth who are, again, dealing with all of these different messages from media, diet culture, and so on. Again, you've mentioned these, but just to make them more explicit, what do you think are some of the triggers out there that promote disordered eating? Bullying is a huge one, Um, like especially in those formative years where you're trying to understand your social identity. If you get rejected, like we're social, you know, creatures, humans are social creatures. And so if you get rejected by your tribe, your community, especially around like those middle school, Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, awkward years, (laughs) um, another trigger is the messages that are being sent to us through the media, you know, in the early 2000s, it was television and movies, and now it's social media, which there's a good and the bad here. We are social media. So -hmm. the content that we put out really matters. And unfortunately, so many of these narratives are being perpetuated and, and we are buying into the beliefs and Again, being social creatures and wanting to fit in, we morph ourselves to fit the trends. It's, it's extremely detrimental. The amount of comparison and the amount of the filters that we have mm-hmm. access to. Have you seen those filters? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. I try it's not just, to. <laughs> I know. I, I let go of the filters a long time ago, but it's really hard to feel like you're constantly keeping up, constantly comparing yourself. And again, constantly feeling like you're just not good enough because you see this picture perfect ideal of these people you're following online. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's hard not to want to create that ideal picture of yourself when it's right Mm -hmm. there. And so what do you think are some steps that youth can take to protect themselves from these triggers? And this can be steps that you've taken, but also steps that you think would work for everyone. Yeah. First thing that comes to mind, oh my goodness, unfollow or mute any accounts that make you feel bad about yourself. (laughs) If you're Mm -hmm. scrolling and and you're realizing that you are like admiring these people and wishing you had something they had, unfollow them or at least mute them. Like if you are going to be on social media for hours a day, which I know most people are, at least make it somewhat of uh, an empowering place to be. Follow accounts that promote body positivity and uh, follow fitness accounts from people who have the credentials, who know what they're talking about, who are giving you actual good tools and resources to help support your fitness or your health or your wellness journey in a way that is empowering beyond the apps. Make sure you're surrounding yourself with people in your real life that empower you. Yeah. If there are people around you that feel toxic that are commenting on your body or 
where you don't feel safe to be your authentic emotional self around, Mm -hmm. you might want to reconsider who you're hanging out with. Yeah. And that's never fun to do, but it's not, it's not, but, but you, everybody deserves to be around people that they can drop their mask around and and be fully uh, vulnerable. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. And so a bit about the future now, what are your Mm. hopes for future eating disorder prevention programs in school? I think continuing the conversation around them, um, having people who have recovered speak at schools so that so that these children have a visual representation an actual lived experience a, a, a real person that they can uh, listen to and and hear rather than you know just powerpoint sl- point slides about like what is it these are the symptoms what to look out for like those mm-hmm. are great mm-hmm. and humans beyond being social creatures we are natural storytellers the way that we best learn and understand our world is through storytelling so i think one of the best ways that children can or we can prevent youth and children from moving in that direction is by having somebody to share their story that might inspire them that might ignite some curiosity and you know, the recovery programs, uh, I would say similar to what I said earlier, having more of a holistic approach. When mm-hmm. I when I was hospitalized, I didn't get any therapy, which makes zero sense to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't allowed to talk to the other patients in the ward about okay. what we were experiencing at all. Like the nurses would get so mad at us. We mm-hmm. weren't allowed to read certain books, listen to certain music. It was extremely filtered. And I think that's harmful. I I think the best people who understand what you're going through is other people who are going through it. So peer support programs or group therapy is so incredibly powerful, especially for eating disorders, because a really big factor in in eating disorders is somewhere along the line, you didn't feel seen or accepted for who you were. And there, there needed to be this external sense of control. So being seen and supported in a group of other people who understand what you're going through, being able to share your feelings vulnerably and, and get it out is, is very, very powerful. So in addition to that, I would say going back to the schools, teaching kids about their emotions, (laughs) Oh my gosh, emotional intelligence, like teaching kids to to understand what they're feeling, to connect with their bodies is huge. I never got that when I was in school. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I dealt with all these really big emotions as a teenager and as a preteen, and I had no idea what to do with them because nobody Mm -hmm. taught me what a feeling Mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. And now what would you say to the parents of kids who might be having eating disorders again even though each person's experience is different is there anything you could say to them that could offer them hope ah my heart (laughs) oh this one this question went right to my heart oh I would say that I have so much compassion for them because that is an extremely painful experience to watch your child go through something, especially if you're not sure what to do. So a lot of compassion to start. Then I would say what your child probably needs the most is a safe space 
to be seen. Um, and this could mean just like listening, just give them a safe space to talk and express their feelings with absolutely no judgment, no advice. Don't, don't say anything. Just give them a safe space to be seen, held, and remind them that they're loved in all of their heaviness and darkness and emotions that they're experiencing. It's amazing. And what would you say to the kids who might be experiencing eating disorders? Mm, I would say that there's nothing wrong with you. What you're experiencing right now probably makes a lot of sense because of what you have experienced in your life to lead up to this point. There is an end of the tunnel or a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not going to feel this way forever. And there is, there is hope. There is a way for you to find so much love within yourself that maybe you don't feel right now, but I promise you, you'll feel one day. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Right. Now to end off, I'm going to share some phrases with you and I'd love for you to complete them in any way that you see fit. Right. So are we ready to go? Yeah. Okay, so first line, if I've learnt one thing in life, that is... Ah, I have so many. (laughs) Oh my goodness. If I've learned... Okay, let me feel into this. If I've learned one thing in my life, it is is that nothing heals in judgment. Mm -hmm. So the first place to heal is compassion, self-compassion. Thank you. The hardest thing about eating disorders is? Wow, the hardest thing about eating disorders is how confusing they are because they make you feel so great sometimes, but so awful other Mm -hmm. times. It's like a toxic relationship. Mm hmm. Toxic relationships are so confusing Mm -hmm. and painful. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, something I would say to the younger version of myself is... You were never too much and your loud, bubbly expression is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Love that. Najetta, thank you so, so much. Uh, thank for you being so here. much yeah for being vulnerable with us I hope Brene Brown one day hears this ah oh, please um, Brene <laughs> I love you <laughs> we love you <laughs> um though it was such a pleasure to hear a bit of your story thank you yeah. so much again thank you amazing bye for now bye